You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. All right. It's time for let's remember some years. Sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. Because Pagliacci Pizza is always better than 500, much like the Mariners in 2007. Oh, man, I would have gone with one of the other ones here. I'll, I'll maybe mention that when we get to it. Anyway, we are talking about the year 2007. So let's start with the Seattle Seahawks, who for the fourth consecutive year, I think the fourth consecutive year, were champions of the NFC West. Started out just 4-4 four and four after an overtime loss at Cleveland in Week 9, but then ripped off five consecutive wins, starting with a 24 nothing victory over the San Francisco 49ers on Monday Night Football. Clinched the NFC West in Week 16, and then played reserves in the second half of a 44-41 loss at Atlanta in the regular season finale, which sounds like a fun game. I have no memory of it. Uh, to I'm like, man, did that game matter to, to Atlanta? I guess, it, yeah. I don't know. I'll have to take a look at that. Like they were they definitely with their playing. reserves and still scored forty-one points. Yeah, I mean, some of those obviously were in the first half, but uh, also Seneca Wallace, looking not that bad. Is this how has this year just gone from my mind? <laughs> uh, Atlanta also was four and twelve at that point, so that, that oh. may have been a factor in it. Uh, Bobby Petrino had left the team mid-season after thirteen games. They finished twenty-ninth oh of thirty-two in both points four. And points against. So Jim Moore was on the other side in that one. Ah, uh, correct. Yes. They were preparing to hire Mike Smith. Anyways, uh, Seahawks hosted the Washington professional football team in round one in the wild card round. Got a 35-14 win. They trailed that one 14-13 with 12-38 left in the game, but took the lead for good on a touchdown by DJ Hackett and then got pick sixes from both Marcus Trufant and Jordan Babineau to run up the score. I I really have vague memories of that game. I remember the next round a lot better, but that Washington game is gone from my mind. I have some vague Did memories. Did we watch of... that together? Probably. I don't, I don't see any reason we wouldn't have. I mean, that was a team that was starting Todd Collins at quarterback. <laughs> They really have played Washington in the playoffs quite a few times and have pretty much never played a memorable game against them. That's fair. I, I will buy that. They're always just like right? super workman-like victories. They really, I mean, the the one that I remember the best, I think, is the the Russ's first playoff game at Washington where RG3 like blew out his leg. Yes. And I really remember that best just for how terrible their field was. Which, weirdly, they have, like, super low injury rates. And Century League Field has, by far, the highest injury rates in the NFL. But Wait, really? Yeah. By far the highest in the NFL? I mean, I don't know if it's by far, but they, I think it is the highest when Football Outsiders has studied this. Really? Yeah. Huh. That was the final game as head coach for Hall of Famer Joe Gibbs after his comeback. So the Seahawks then traveled for the second consecutive year to the Midwest for round two, this time playing in the snow at Green Bay. Wait, that was in the snow, right? I don't I, I don't, think so. I don't know if I looked this up, but that's my I'm pretty distinct sure it was. memory. I believe it was a Sunday morning oh, yeah, game, yeah. and it was, it was just like, this that, was... That's looking pretty snowy. Well, so this, 
the Seahawks went out and took a lead right away. And it was definitely one of those moments where, like, we knew that the dynasty was kind of over for the Seahawks at that point. I don't think we had any, like, real notions that they were going to advance to the Super Bowl. But there was a moment there at the very beginning where I was like, oh, crap, we're going to do this. And then uh, things turned very quickly yeah, in that ex- one. Yeah, it was extremely snowy. So Ryan Grant fumbles on the opening play of the game from scrimmage. And then uh, the Seahawks take the lead shortly thereafter because they recovered the – or uh, I think Lofa Tutubu took the, the fumble down to the one-yard line. So they take a 7 nothing lead. And then Ryan Grant fumbles again, and the Seahawks cash it in for that 14 nothing early lead. And then they were outscored 42-6 to the rest of the way. It's wild. Ryan Grant ended up with 27 carries for 201 yards, while Sean Alexander, in his final game for the Seahawks, had 20 yards on nine carries. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that was a beast. I remember Ryan Grant being a beast for, like, maybe one or two years there. He seemed like a Hall of Fame running back. <laughs> and then the Packers just brought in some other running back. It really is like if you want to think about how running backs don't matter, you should Google Ryan Grant and wide receiver comes up first over this player who had 200 yards in a playoff game against the Seahawks, and his career was just like gone. So he was a rookie at that point. He rushed for 1,200 plus yards each of the next two seasons, and then had uh, must have had an injury and was never the same. I think that was probably a factor in it. Although he, his yards per carry wasn't very good those seasons anyway. Uh, the Seahawks also that season said goodbye to longtime fullback Max Strong, who retired midseason due to a neck injury. So definitely, you felt the end of an era was coming. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if we knew if it was coming as quickly as it proved to come in 2008, but we'll get to that next week. This, this was the year that the Sonics, quote, took a new direction. That Ryan Graham's the... an undrafted free agent also. Yeah. <laughs> Running back's coming. And as... As I guess he didn't play for the Giants that first year, but as rookie averaged over five yards of carry and almost a thousand yards. So good thing the Packers drafted a running back in the second round over a decade later. They definitely learned. <laughs> definitely learned their <laughs> lessons. Uh, that was the take a new direction was the headline of the press release the Sonics set out announcing that both coach Bob Hill and GM Rick Sund had been relieved of their duties after a 31 and 51 season. Uh, a big was bummer. that new direction po- pointed towards the southeast? It was. It was. <laughs> like, yes. yes, it was. Let's say that the, the new direction had nothing to do with basketball. A big bummer. We haven't talked about this guy yet on Let's Remember Some Years, but Robert Swift, we were very excited about him coming off a strong finish to 2005-06. He had started at center, had that big game against the Suns in maybe his first career start on the day of the uh, NFC Championship game in the Kobe 81. It's, we're contractually obligated to mention that game every <laughs> single week in Let's Remember Some Years. Uh, so he's he's the starting training center in training camp, but then tears his ACL in the preseason in a game at Spokane Arena, and uh, that was basically the end of his functional NBA career, sadly. Uh, the season started inauspiciously with a 10-106 home loss to the Portland Trailblazers, who got 20 points on 10 of 16 shooting from some rookie named Brandon Roy. Oh, would go on to win Rookie of the Year. I just always think of... Like, there was a legitimate belief among Sonic scouts before that draft, which they didn't have the chance to draft him, ultimately. Uh, he went they much definitely could have gotten that pick if they wanted to, but yes. Uh, that Brandon Roy was no better than Davian Wilkins. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
know better than Damien Wilkins. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's not fun to remember years. Maybe the most skilled basketball player that I've ever seen play. But, you know, Damian Wilkins. Had some good moments as a rookie. Uh, the Sonics started that season oh 10 <laughs> and 11, but then lost six in a row. And they had dropped to 27 and 41 when Ray Allen underwent season-ending ankle surgery. Basically ending the season, they lost nine of their last ten games to finish with their worst record since 1985-86. But this wasn't actually all bad news because there has never been a more exciting college basketball season in my lifetime than 2006-07. I don't know if you feel the same way. Very fun college basketball season. And really like the Big 12 in particular. Kevin Durant at Texas, AC Law the fourth at Texas Uh A&M. AC Law Ivy, yep. We were very into AC Law, super into AC Law. Was this the year there was like that seven overtime game? Did that happen this season? I I'm pretty sure that was later because like Johnny Flynn like, played in that game, didn't he? Th- that yeah. was in the Big East Championship. I think that was 2009. <clears throat> that was in the Big East tournament. It wasn't the championship. Or, like, yeah, that's what I mean. It was like a Thursday night, I think. Uh, yeah, that was 2009. Huh. Well, that was a fun game too. Uh, but like you have Greg Oden and Mike Conley at Ohio State, you've got the Florida team that was looking to repeat with Joakim Noah, Al Horford, Corey Brewer, three guys who went in the lottery. So we were monitoring the lottery standings all year, and then comes uh, this thrilling lottery. I will always remember being gathered in the uh, the lobby of the Sonics offices to watch this. Uh, is Kevin Durant and Greg Oden figuring out who's going to get the top two picks in that year's draft? And the excitement of the Sonics not coming up where they were supposed to. Actually, no one realized it until a pick late, because I think Portland was like right behind them, and they jumped both of those teams. But no one realized that the Sonics had also been jumped until like whatever the next team came up where they were supposed to be. So it's Portland, Seattle, and Atlanta are the top three going to that commercial. Two Northwest teams in the mix. Uh, so I don't know if, I don't know if that video still exists or is playable at this point. I think it is. I think it's on YouTube. Uh, everyone in the offices is cheating, not Portland or Portland when the number three pick comes up, but instead it's Atlanta and then everyone celebrates. We didn't even like stay to listen to whether we got two or one because it didn't matter as long as you got in the top two. Ultimately it mattered a lot, but yes. I, at the time, it didn't seem to. I mean, we were more excited about getting Kevin Durant. So getting number, the number two pick was probably a more exciting thing. And our director of marketing at the end of that video holds up a Durant jersey, even though there was a distinct possibility the Blazers could have taken him number one. Wow. He just had a Durant, a Durant Sonics jersey, or did he have a Texas one? No, a Durant Sonics jersey. Wow. Did you have one made for each of them? I, I don't remember him, like putting one down i think it may have only been i don't know <laughs> was there an al horford jersey too i'm glad uh, well and really a, i mean an excellent 2007 draft especially at the top where it felt like it was just those two but then you have a couple players who i suppose up until this year uh were pretty big time nba contributors at three and four as well yeah i'm not so. gonna write off mike conley and and al horford because of the I'm fact saying, that in year 13 they're struggling they're, a little bit well, Kevin Durant hasn't had a great year either. Wow. Um, but 
I mean, a monumental NBA draft, and I want to, like, I want to be cynical about it now, and I obviously am, but, like, in that moment, I didn't, I did not even watch the draft lottery. It was like, I had better things to do you than, <laughs> you know, I, I was working at Rainy Dog Radio, um, but, uh, like, I wasn't paying attention to it, and then I found out, and I was like, what pick did we get? And I remember talking to Katie. And when I said we, I was talking about the Blazers. <laughs> that is and not she was true. Like, no, number one pick. No, I was like, what pick did, did... I don't know if I meant we was the Blazers, but like I was full in on the Blazers at that point. I had a Martel Webster jersey. I had a Brandon Roy t-shirt. I remember that summer, like I puked red wine into my Brandon Roy t-shirt. It's gone forever now. I'm really sad about it. But the... like, And then I was like, what did the Sonics get? And she was like, number two. It was almost as important in that lottery. What I'm not even rewriting history. But then the idea of Kevin Durant, I immediately went and changed my Facebook photo to a picture of Kevin Durant at Texas. Wow. So that's what I'm saying. Is like I want to be cynical about it, but the idea of Kevin Durant coming here and the sliver of hope that the team was going to stay in Seattle and have Kevin Durant was pretty thrilling. So new management hired shortly after the lottery – Sam Presti became the NBA's youngest GM at the time, uh, which now he's been in the job for almost 13 years, uh, three weeks before drafting Durant. Uh, later that summer, hired PJ Carlissimo as the head coach. And then we saw the starting of the breakup, then we saw the breakup of that, that former core team. Uh, the trade of Ray Allen on the night of the draft, short announced like almost immediately after the Durant pick was announced, going to Boston for the number five pick used on Jeff Green, as well as Delonte West and Wally Zerbiak. And then Lewis goes to Orlando in a sign-and-trade deal that turned out to be one of the best in franchise history, really. Uh, they, they created a trade exception in that sign-and-trade. They used the trade exception to get two picks, first-round picks from Phoenix for Kurt Thomas, and then traded Kurt Thomas at the deadline to San Antonio for a third first-round pick, one of those three ending up becoming Serge Ibaka. Great. <laughs> cool. Great news. They traded Kurt Thomas for two first-round picks. Did I hear that right? They got two first-round picks to take back <laughs> Kurt Thomas's salary because Phoenix oh, would pay the luxury tax. Dump. This yeah. was before Amnesty. I mean, Amnesty was only a one-time thing with the, lot of the uh, new CBA Two new CBAs, but it was. Can you imagine that. wanting to get off Kurt Thomas's salary that bad that you were willing to attach two first round picks to it? It also like, like teams weren't as well managed in this regard. Steve Kerr had just taken over the Suns as GM. I I don't think he would have made that trade like a year later. It was a bad one. So that was with Steve Kerr as the GM. I am ninety five percent certain Steve Kerr made that trade. Yes. <laughs> wow. Uh... <clears throat> I mean, this was obviously, it wasn't the players that we anticipated. Uh, you know, Jeff Green never panned out to be the star that we thought he could be. I mean, I remember watching the NCAA tournament. I remember seeing him D up somebody way before he had ever drafted by the Sonics and being like, that dude is going to be good in the NBA. It just felt like he was going to grow into like a versatile scorer and was a great defender. Jeff Green felt like an NBA player to me. And I think... If you would have asked me in that moment who the best player was going to be from that class, I would have been just as likely to have said Jeff Green as anybody else. As likely as Durant and Odin? I mean, I, 
I don't know. Like Jeff Green had proven it a little bit. Like Odin was obviously important. I'm but sorry, did Craig Odin not prove really it? He was leading it. Ohio State to the championship game, beating Georgetown in the Final Four. I'm telling you, Jeff Green looked like an NBA player in let college. Me, let me tell you, I mean, I thought that he Jeff was Green the was fifth pick in the draft. Like this is not. But Joey, Craig Odin was the first pick in the draft. Kevin Durant was the second pick in the draft, and it was a two like a draft with two players that were considered historically great prospects. I'm not saying Jeff Green wasn't a good prospect, but this notion that he was as good as anyone in the draft is preposterous. I, this was just a thought a thought that I had personally. Okay. Kevin well, Durant was obviously very raw. He was the best player in the country as a freshman. He wasn't raw. He was only raw he was as like a fucking shooting guard. Pounds. I mean, sure. He's I'm not arguing against Kevin Durant. I you seem to be. Photo to a picture of Kevin Durant, but I just distinctly remember watching Jeff Green in the NCAA tournament and being like, "Damn, that's going to be a good NBA player." This is why scouts recommend not only watching one game in the NCAA tournament and shaping all your opinions off of it. I actually want to tell Con- people watching Jordan Brooks tape. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I wanted I Conley. Wait. I was really hoping he would drop drop to five. I thought he was going to be very good. And then for like four years, it was like, well, I guess I was wrong about him. And then it turned out I, I wasn't. So it was a, it was that long before Conley was good. Pretty much. Yeah. Really? Well, I'm sure that they would have traded him by that point. Uh, and also, it wouldn't have fucking mattered. So, yeah. you know. <clears throat> but th- there was a time. I mean, that draft night, we watched it at, was that the Furtado Center? No, Furtado was just media there. Uh, the draft party was held at the EMP. That was the EMP that we were in? I'm almost certain it was the, oh, no, it wasn't the EMP. That was the Senate draft. It wasn't the EMP. It was the uh, Northwest we, we... Room or whatever. At Seattle Center. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I immediately went and bought a Kevin Durant jersey, just like the cheapest looking jersey. Like, it was clear that they'd they'd rush that shit together. And uh, I went and bought a Kevin Durant jersey, which I probably still have somewhere. Um, and it was like, this is this is our dude now. Kevin Durant is our guy. I mean, my the other thing about that is like the – the T-shirts that they had at the draft party and all the like the signs and everything said the soups are back, which is a either a cool irony or gonna be really awesome whenever that actually happens in like 2040. I look forward to remembering that year uh, because as we were getting excited about Kevin Durant's debut, the day after the home opener against Phoenix, Clay Bennett announces that they're going to move after the season that you know that their intention is to move after the season setting up a lawsuit over the key arena lease that would of course play out in 2008 it was the the entire year was that lawsuit so i mean we can talk about that in 2008 we 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 can and well uh but as seattle was on the path to losing a franchise is some measure of consolation Seattle did gain a franchise in 2007 as it was announced as an MLS expansion city for 2009. That announcement coming on November 12th with Drew Carey as part of the ownership group raising the 12th and flag before the Seahawks Monday Night Football game that night, the one that we mentioned earlier, the 24-0 there go. over San Francisco. I remember watching that. distinctly remember watching that at your house. Uh, this was a long time coming. Like <clears throat> little did we know, we would eventually join the ranks of Cincinnati and Sacramento. 
don't know if I'd put it that way. Uh, when CenturyLink Field, when that vote happened in 96, I think, part of the whole reason that they got over the top and got more than 50% of the vote is because of the fact that there was a strong push from the soccer community and this idea that this would be a home for Seattle to get an MLS franchise with MLS starting that year. And then inexplicably, MLS did not put a team here for fucking 13 years. <laughs> Both of those, I have to say, eventually worked out quite well. I I guess so, but I mean, I'm saying the CenturyLink field vote in general, like oh, even yeah. if you're a person who was opposed to it at the time, right? Like, let's say that you're a Lakata type who finds no cultural value from sports. Like, I'm sure that Lakata sees some cultural value from soccer, of course, but I, the I don't like term, that that implication about soccer fans. I'm just the shoe fits. Um, the, I don't the think it does. <clears throat> it is, soccer is a highly generational thing. Nick Lakata is an old man. All right, fine. Unless he's a recent child of immigrants, then no. I, I don't agree with you that soccer is a generational thing. You don't agree with me that soccer is a generational thing? I have been at those games. There's It's not fucking Millennial City at Sounders matches. It's not? It's Tech Bro City. What are you talking about? Uh, it might be Tech Bro City, but it's still an older crowd. I do not agree with this take whatsoever. And again, I don't think it's reflective of I don't know. I there's Yeah, I don't There's I don't a certain the, the constituency for basketball is not the type of crowd that Nick Lakata cared about. And I think the soccer audience is the kind of audience that Nick Licata cared more about. That's it. Maybe, but I don't think Nick Licata personally cares about soccer. I would be very surprised. So all this time... <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea. Somehow, let's remember some years, we came to debating whether Nick Licata cares about soccer. I'm not saying Nick Licata cares about soccer. I'm saying Nick Licata cares about the votes of people who care about soccer. But those people didn't care about soccer in 2007. They didn't know they cared about soccer yet. They only learned that later. When they moved <laughs> like the here, rest of us. When they moved here to work at Amazon, <laughs> they didn't care about oh it wherever God. they were previously, in California somewhere. <laughs> they were in college. Uh, the USL Sounders were in existence in 2007. And oh, man. Was this the year we went to a Sounders game? If there, were, there was two years we went to a Sounders game. Uh, they reached the semifinals of the U.S. Open Cup that year for the first time, losing 2-1 in extra time to FC Dallas at Questfield in front of 10,000-plus, including the fabulous Pelton brothers. That game was awesome, right? Like, I think Sabo was on the team. Wait, who? Sebastian Latou. No, he was on the team the next year. Oh, well, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> no, nevertheless, look, we're not going to talk about that match. Um <laughs> We're talking about both years, as if they're one, because I remember them together. Uh, yeah, you, don't, you think there's only one of these games. There turned out to be two. We'll talk about <laughs> the other one next year, I guess. Will we? Yeah. Uh, it was thrilling. I mean, it was the first ever semi-professional soccer match that I went to. We had a freaking great time. I learned about time-wasting, and let me tell you, I was not happy with it. You were aware of time-wasting. We had watched the World Cup the year before. I was mildly aware of time-wasting. I was not aware of FC Dallas. This was the year that they had a 1-0 a lead, and they just fucking wasted minutes upon minutes. And it was just like, you're playing a, like, 
USL team. Come well, on. Was Have score- some pride. It was scoreless at the start of extra time. And then Dallas scored like right at the beginning of extra time. And then they add another goal sometime and later. I turned to you and said, how does this work? <laughs> so the game's over, right? <laughs> and then the Sounders, well, you, I mean, we were still confused about that during the uh, Cup Champions League as recently <laughs> as a couple of months ago, back when sports happened. That was pretty wild. Man, remember sports? I remember, I think that was almost precisely two months ago. I think that was two months and a day ago, and it seems like so many years. Uh, and then the Sounders scored like very, very late stages of that one, pulled one back, but it was too late to do anything. All right, let's talk about UW men's basketball, which missed out on the NCAA tournament after doing the math here on the fly four consecutive years. (laughs) Not three. I guess three. (laughs) I mean, it's not the math. It's trying to remember which UW statistics degree to get that. I I didn't major in statistics. You know that. Uh, Yes, he's, of course... Long, you need a business business marketing degree to count those three years. I, okay, I just needed to remember which year was which. <laughs> so it wasn't in my notes. They lost Roy and Bobby Jones to the NBA draft, and Jamal Williams and Mike Jensen also exhausted their eligibility, but added the highest rating, rated recruiting class in school history, led by Spencer Haas and Quincy Pondexter. That team started 10-1 and in non-conference with their lone loss at Gonzaga, including a win over a number 12 LSU led by their front, led by a, a couple of future NBA players in Big Baby Davis, who was a huge star at that point, and Garrett Temple. The Huskies then started Pac-10 play 1-6 with their lone win in that ASU game that Tristan attended opposite the Tony Romo game. Won five of their next six before a four-game losing streak, including a mid-season trip to play at number 7 Pitt which seemed to happen a lot back then, the mid-season non-conference games. Uh, Huskies finished 8-10 and 10 in conference, beat ASU in the first round of the Pac-10 tournament before losing to number 11 Wazoo for the third time that season. They were considered on the bubble with a 19-13 and 13 record, and Stanford did make the NCAA tournament at 18-13 and 13 with a virtually, virtually identical ranking in Ken Palm, but not only were left out of the NCAA tournament, but then shockingly did not make the NIT. <laughs> Wow. And that will have some ramifications for the following year, which we'll get into. You know, football, if we will. You know, football began the Jake Locker era. And this is something I actually probably should have mentioned last week, is that, well, after uh, Isaiah Stanback got injured, uh, Tyrone Willingham, like, very long-term thinking, did not burn Jake Locker's red shirt. No, it didn't work out mm-hmm. very well, because Jake Locker was bad it's in 2010. Exploded him playing safety, of course, but... No. But, Don't you remember there was talk of Jake Locker playing safety? I mean, there was talk of it. Uh, as Carl Bunnell struggled at quarterback. So Locker's debut as starter came at Syracuse in a game the Huskies won 42-12, to going 14 of 19 for 142 yards with 10 carries for 83 yards and two touchdowns as a runner. The Huskies then went on to beat number 22 Boise State 24-10 before getting blown out by number 10, Ohio State. Then they lost their next five, their first five conference games. Although they were competitive, that includes a 27-24 loss to number one USC at a Husky Stadium. 
uh, a game where the Locker TD with 34 seconds left got them back within three. Huskies finished two and six in conference play, including an Apple Cup home loss on an Alex Brink touchdown with 31 seconds left. Then gave undefeated Hawaii a pretty good run in their last game at the very end of the oh, season. Oh yeah, December 1st or something in the snow, like a 10 p.m. Pacific start time. It was snowing here. It was not snowing in Hawaii. To be fair. <laughs> <laughs> it was not even in the snow. snow in Seattle, yes. <laughs> Before losing that one, thirty-five twenty. I I remember like my distinct memory is like that I was couldn't Col- go. Colt Brennan's Hawaii, yeah. right? June Jones, uh, the team that then got just destroyed in the BCS in whichever game they ended up in. Uh, yeah, I remember like I couldn't go over to watch that game with you because it snowed. So yeah, it was. I mean, it was also a crazy late start. Yeah. I think I fell asleep. Was this, oh man, so the next year was the year that we started with Oregon in week one? Was that yeah. 2008? Yeah, you, yes, it was 2008. That was a year in, of all God. the years in Husky football history. 2008 was one of them. What was the year that we had that BYU game? Was that 2009 or is this 2007? It wasn't 2007. We'll get to it. Good. Okay. Do you think I was not going to mention the BYU game? You think that was not okay. going to come up? All right. I I told you the non older non conference games. Be Boise State, like take that, Coach Pete. Oh, I I remember that Boise State game, and Boise State laid down in that game. That, no, I, that, that that's was, not the one you're thinking of. Oh, this was an earlier Boise State game. Yeah, that was in 2011, I think. That is much older. I, it's all the same. Like, how many years can we remember at once? <laughs> <laughs> really a lot of them. Uh, I feel like, was the Boise State game the one, there was like a Marcel Reese, like, 95-yard touchdown <gasps> in one of these games. Oh, my God. We loved Marcel Reese. Oh, still uh, do. That's pro bowler, Marcel Reese, to you. That was not that game, though. He had a, he only had a 58-yard touchdown in that game. Oh, God, Marcel Reese was awesome. Playing wide uh, receiver back know, then. Be- beginning of the locker era, though, we definitely... After, you know, it hadn't been that long, and obviously there were probably, there were definitely worse years to come, but... Worse year. <laughs> there was worse year to come. Jake Locker really had the whole fan base excited. I mean, I have such a distinct memory of that first Syracuse game, watching it here when the famous cousin Katie was living where I live now, and eating way too many Doritos and getting sick off it of was, him. It was Friday night before... Yeah. The bummer shoot that we're going to talk about in a little bit. I uh, I remember just being like fucking swamped with work because <clears throat> I was an intern, of course. Um, and, you know, the intern workload, it gets to you. And uh, preparing for bummer shoot and then like scrambling to get to Katie's to watch the end of that game. And uh, just being like, this is awesome. Like, we're good now. Not yet. Is it turned him? As you mentioned, definitely had at least a good player on that team. Did Syracuse have a good player on that team? (laughs) This sounds like a deadspin post. A classic (laughs) deadspin post, not a current deadspin post. I'm not seeing any yet. (laughs) They had a Mike Williams, but I don't think it was any of the good Mike Williamses. (laughs) No, I'm not finding any good players. A Mike Williams type. I can't rule it out. Maybe they had some offensive linemen who was good. Maybe there was a later it. victory against Syracuse where they had a good player. They did play a Syracuse in, I want to say 2010. It was a fair bit later that Syracuse came to <clears throat> Seattle to return that meeting. 
Yeah, it was 2010. And they also did not have a good player looking that up. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Nassib is like at least someone whose name I remember. So uh, yeah, that, he's drafted. That gives him something over that 2017. Oh, okay. Well, they, they, the Huskies beat the crap out of a Syracuse team in the Carrier Dome who did not have a good player. They were not good. But, <laughs> uh, any win was exciting. At but that the point. Huskies are back. <laughs> As you mentioned, the Mariners finished that season better than 500 for the first time in three years, I think. Finishing second in the AL West at 88 and 74, despite Mike Hargrove stepping down mid-season as manager to be replaced by John McLaren. What I remember about this season, Felix Hernandez was 4-4 four and four with a 4.33 ERA when Dave Cameron at USS Mariner wrote about his need to mix pitch selection early in games. It was an open letter to Mariners pitching coach Rafael Chavez that Chavez actually showed Felix and Felix talked about after his next start. And then he did pitch somewhat better. He went 10-3 and three with a 3.7 ERA the rest of the season. The nerds must have taken a victory lap oh, on that one. Oh, my so God. So much. Mid, Mid-2000s baseball internet. God, I just can't even. How dare you prove that? Uh, that's it's also that's SeaTac's <laughs> own Dave Cameron. Oh, well, I take it back. Exactly. Uh, he didn't go to tell you, though. We, we've already discussed this. We have talked about Dave Cameron already. Uh, 40 saves that season for J.J. Putz, who is an all-star closer. Uh, and this is my opportunity to tell a story about J.J. at a Mariners game, at a Sonics game, I should say. This was I, I was not expecting this. This is early 2008. He was sitting courtside, and he came up to the strike, meet... Strike the story, sorry. Wait, What? <laughs> no, but we're remembering in 2007 because he wasn't any good in 2008. We have rules about these things, damn it. <laughs> it was the two okay, So he's stand. He during halftime, he stands in front of press row, talking to like maybe some other Mariners player or something, and performing at halftime because like the, the halftime acts got increasingly more eccentric that season. Uh, a an archer who. A female archer who was performing like she was like standing on her head and shooting the arrow with her feet. And (laughs) there was an NBA writer sitting next to me who was like very excited to watch this performance. And his view was blocked by J.J. Putz. It was like 6'4". So he kind of like yelled at him to get out of the way. And I swear to God, I was sitting right next to him. I thought for sure that this NBA writer was going to fight J.J. Putz <laughs> at courtside. Like, it was that intense. And then later... he wanted to watch an archer shooting an arrow with her feet? So one of our one of my coworkers at the Sonics was the former Mariner Moose. So he knew J.J. Putz. And he came over was and yelled... Wasn't he the person who coordinated the halftime shows? Yeah. And he came yeah. over and yelled at this NBA writer. Like, you can't be saying that to our, our, like, empl- our, uh, our fans... And then he he got reprimanded for yelling at the NBA writer because he really shouldn't do that. Wow, brilliant cycle of anger revolving around J.J. Putz. (laughs) Really, that's my defining memory of a guy who once saved 40 games in a season. (laughs) Wasn't that guy, I remember there was one time where there was like a really bad halftime show. (laughs) And then there was that Bad Day song. That, that had a bad day song and somebody in the office like played it when he came in after like a bad halftime show. I don't specifically remember that story. That's the story that I remember. 
It's a good story. It was also the end of an era for the Seattle Storm, which saw head coach Ian Donovan resign after a 17-17 and finish in first-round sweep at the hands of the eventual champion, Phoenix Mercury. All the worse because Lauren Jackson was at her most dominant ever, winning an MVP with the highest PER, 35.0, in WNBA history. Second was her 2006 season, but LJ was limited in her minutes that year. She was able to play her regular minutes per game in 2007. She tied the WNBA record with 47 points in an overtime loss at Washington. And now I pause to say this is another story that I think technically happened in 2008. My single favorite memory of Kevin Durant. Uh, Jada Evans, the Seattle Times. Uh, the story starts, Durant, when they first went back to D.C. for the first time after he was drafted, he was talking about his memories of, God only knows what they call that arena now, Verizon Center in in D.C. Uh, and he mentioned going to a game where the Mystics had clinched their first playoff berth. And so Jada, who covered both the Sonics and the Storm for the Seattle Times, asked Durant about his like women's basketball fandom and mentioned Lauren Jackson scoring, I think she said like 43 points against the Mystics the previous season. And Kevin Durant stops her, corrects her, and says, it was 47. Wow. Just amazing. An amazing moment. Uh, that year, Lauren won Defensive Player of the Year. And the, storm, the, the rest of their defense was so bad that they finished 10th out of 13 teams in defensive rating. Man, it's like, who did we talk about? That was like the Sonics that year, right? The previous year. Oh, when when Earl Watson made all the difference? Yeah. I think Lloyd was a bit more impactful than Earl Watson. All right. Well, that's enough on Seattle sports for 2007. Let's talk about You always get so so mad at me. Like You're like, these take so long. Right? You're like, oh, the, the, let's remember some years every time you blame me. But then you're like, oh, I need to get my put story off. <laughs> it didn't take that long. You're like, Wait, look, you can't even remember 2007 without the put story that happened in 2008. <clears throat> if you have uh, a story about any Mariners players almost getting in a fight with NBA writers on press row, then I want to hear it. Okay, so anyway, graduation had just come out. Jose Lopez pissed. <laughs> <laughs> 2007 in music. You know, we were talking earlier, and I was like, I just don't. This year, it feels like a lot of artists don't have their, like, seminal records in 2007. We've talked about all these different years where it's, like, kind of we had the rise of indie rock through the early 2000s. We had backpack rap happen. Uh, we had me rediscovering mainstream rap music. And then I was, I was digging a little bit deeper and I had forgotten what to me at the time was the most important rap album that came out in 2007, maybe like of the first 22 years of my life, but I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go that far, but like, what really stretched the boundaries of what I thought about people rapping. And this was the mixtape era. Um, So before this one, there was the Can't Tell Me Nothing mixtape by Kanye. Uh There was the first track on that, on the Can't Tell Me Nothing mixtape, came out May 27, 2007. And the first song on that was called Friday Morning, May 25th. 
And I was like, this is my birthday. And it's the first track on a Kanye mixtape. And then he like unveiled Stronger, which just, I never heard the Daft Punk song beforehand. And it was like, when I heard that, I was like, all right, well, sign me up. Kanye is fucking back. Kanye has reinvented music. He took, I remember listening to, there's the podcast uh, about Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, where they were talking about graduation. And it was like, Kanye, he did the late registration thing. It was very big. It was grandiose. And he was like, I'm going to make arena pop music now. And stronger to me, he took like an already recognizable sample to anybody who had any sort of knowledge of musical history and also just made it pop. And on that, there was like, can't tell me nothing. There was stronger. There was him remixing, like throw some D's, huge songs of 2007. Buy You a Drink by T-Pain. This was like, I remember mowing the lawn on like probably May 28th, 2007, and just being like, I'm so fucking hyped for this Kanye record. Uh, Young Folks, when he he had a remix, is Jay-Z and Kanye Kanye West rapping on a remix of Young Folks. Wait, I don't remember this at all. Well, you probably, you weren't listening to mixtapes in 2007. You can't tell me nothing. Most important record of 2007, though. Wow. Is not that one. Another mixtape. And it's The Drought 3 by Lil Wayne. Like, this is... The reason Lil Wayne is still a famous rapper is because of this mixtape. Like, this was the peak of his entire career, excluding nothing. And I remember by the time Carter 3 came out, I was like, oh, Wheezy kind of sucks again. Like, there are a couple moments where it's, like, that are fine, you know? Um, it's, like, let the beat build. And I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. But then in a milli or whatever, but a lot of it is just kind of nonsense. On Drought 3, this is, like, a, a rapper at the absolute height of their powers. He's rapping over all of the most famous songs of, like, 2006, 2007, and destroying the original versions of it. And it's all freestyled. Like every single second of it, he's like the the way that at that time, and it feels like there was like a weird moment where it's like Weezy had done college, and before like drugs had gotten him, where he had this one moment of a like massive massive peak, and that was Drought Three. And I don't even know, like I don't think it's on streaming services or whatever. I had two two CDs that I burned in 2007 and played in my car nonstop. And it was like that, and then there was the leak, which was supposed to be the Carter 3, and there's some moments on there where I'm like, this is going to be the greatest rap album of all time. Uh, and it got leaked, and he completely scrapped it. And it was like, the real Carter 3 was very successful, but it was not the same. And Drought 3 is like, this was a major, major artist at their absolute peak, putting out their best possible music. I mean, should we talk about... Else- well, LCD. go ahead. I mean, should we talk about the graduation, the Kanye versus 50 Cent battle on the same day their album was dropping? Them September the same day? 11, 2007. It's funny because he has that line, 50 told me, go ahead, switch your style up. And if they hate them, let them hate and watch your money pile up. And there was like this comp- competition between those two artists. And it was the moment where it was like, oh, 50 Cent is not an important musical artist anymore. I think the record was called Curtis. Yes. Yes. Uh, I did not put any of those songs 
in the Let's Remember Some Years playlist. And it was, it was just like, it was all marketing or whatever, having the two compete with each other. But it was two artists going in two totally different directions. And it was 50 Cent, who is not like an artist in the same way that Kanye West was, especially at that time. And like graduation wasn't the peak of Kanye's career. Graduation was his probably initial like highest level of success and what took him to a legit arena artist. I saw him at Key Arena probably in 2008 on the graduation tour. This was when we invented Stunna Shades. That was what we were doing in 2007, 2008. Uh, and he had a spaceship behind him. And it was like 50 Cent was not selling out Key Arena at that time. He just, he was, he was a singles artist who put out one pretty good record and was in the process of fading. And they had this moment and it was like, dog, be in vitamin water commercials. You know, you're not on the level of Kanye West as an artist. And that's fine. Like 50 cent can fashion himself as a businessman. And you know, now maybe we'll view them totally differently. But as far I mean, as like the, their heights in the competition, wasn't even close sales no. wise. He made a lot of money on vitamin water. Yeah, no, I, I, this is no shade of 50 cent. He just, he was more of a businessman than he was an artist. And Kanye West was more of an artist at the time. I, I think you were mentioning LCD sound system. Sound of Silver. Like, every single second. And and this was one of those, like, again, another artist who has, like, the, not a lot of artists had their peak years in 2008. This is one who did, though. And, like, What's pretty much... In 2007. Oh, sorry, 2007. <clears throat> pretty much every single second of Sound of Silver is perfect. Where it's like, it, it builds and it grows, and so it's a record that sounds both immediate and takes its time. And I remember listening to, I had, I was right about to graduate from UW. It was that, like, spring period, I think this was months after it came out. And, you know, UW in the spring, like, because oh. <clears throat> it goes later than a lot of colleges do. Like, once you get past Memorial Day or something, like around that time period, whenever it gets sunny in Seattle, there's no better place to be on Earth than the UW campus. It's so gorgeous. And it's perfect. You're sitting there, and it's a sunny day, and you can like look out over the fountain toward Bellevue, and it's like, there's no, no better place no, to be on no, Earth it, right now. The, that <clears throat> looks out at Mount Rainier. It's called Rainier Vista. That's what they call it. You don't think it heads toward Bellevue? It doesn't face east? No, it faces south. <clears throat> We're going to need some scientists to get on that one. Um, <laughs> look, I got an English degree. But the walking around, listening to that, it was like two weeks before my graduation. I remember like I'd finished a class, and I was listening to on my like old old schools. I didn't have a fucking iPod yet. Uh, I had like an old school CD player. I think it was my ex-girlfriend's CD player. <laughs> or maybe my girlfriend at the time's CD player. And I'd like had a burn CD of Sound of Silver and just like starting to listen to someone great into all my friends, which still of the last two decades are together some of the best songs that have ever been recorded in those two decades. Right? I like, those two there. songs are 
perfect. <clears throat> and it sounded like like the future too, because this was sort of electronic music. It was like the it, it wasn't scary, but it was like okay, something new is happening here a little bit. You know, like we're moving a little bit away from guitars. And I mean, like the this year was probably one of the years where the idea of like indie rock moved from white dudes playing guitars to uh, white dudes playing other instruments. Uh, but no, like between this and then Kala by MIA, it was like, okay, it's like what we consider indie rock is transitioning. But Sound, Sound of Silver was peak, peak LCD sound system. I mean, they don't sell out 10 Madison Square Gardens or whatever without that album. Uh-huh. That's all that happened in 2007. No, I mean, <laughs> <clears throat> also for me, so I started interning at the Vera Project in 2007, and this was like the first ever time I started writing about music in 2007. I interned at the Vera Project in 2007. I started working at Rainy Dog Radio in 2007, hip hop music director, what up? And uh, <clears throat> this was like, I was just about to graduate from college and I was like, I, I know that I want to work in music and I've told all these people this for a long time, but now I need to actually start doing some actionable things. And I kind of just did it all at once. Um, so, okay, here's a story. Oh my God. Uh, so when I started as the hip hop music director at Rainy Dog Radio, I was the co- I was chosen as co hip hop music director with a dude named Rudy Willingham. Do you know who that is? No. Go look him up on Instagram <clears throat> right now. You, I feel like you'll recognize him. The like first week that we were and like we didn't really see each other that much. We did one in session. He was in a group called Rudy and the Rhetoric, uh, a rap group. Whereas him, he made the beats, and then another dude named the Rhetoric. Where we like definitely went to happy hour first. We probably went to fucking Aussies beforehand <laughs> and then came back. And I think it was me and Mrs. Fantasy Genius and Chris Smith and Rudy and the Rhetoric on air live, all having clearly like d- been to Aussies. And we did a, a session with them together, whereas like I was interviewing them live on air. Uh, I think that was the only time that I was ever on air on Rainy Dog Radio. Did you look up, Rudy? I, this is definitely strong work. I don't, I don't know that I specifically <laughs> recognize it. You don't recognize this art? I mean, it's fucking everywhere. He did he did the artwork for, like, Capital Block Party this year. Like, Rudy's now a famous person, in a way. He's like an influencer. He's 40,000 Instagram followers. Yeah, I get that. Uh, uh and so, like, a week into my internship, or a week into my position as co-hip-hop music director at Rainy Dog, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go apply for this internship. And he's like, oh, yeah, me too. Which one? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, the booking internship at the Vero Project. And he was like, oh, yeah, cool, me too. I'm at three. <laughs> and I was interviewing, like, an hour after him. Like, I just <laughs> met this dude. And I was interviewing right after him. And, I mean, I stressed and panicked about that interview. You had to, like... <clears throat> This was way more intense than any of the Vera Project booking internships I ever dealt with after. It made you, like, take a show and, like, like book a bunch of local bands for it and stuff. I had to, like, go go through and do this. There was, like, work to do for an internship interview. Uh, but I was lucky enough to get that interview. I went to 
a show that weekend when the Vera Project opened up their space at Seattle Center, which is now next to where SIF and KXP are. Uh, but was there before both of them. It was like the opening shows. And one of them, Dime Def, was performing. Um, <laughs> who, again, were like, they were the, the like local rap group du jour of 2007. I was hyped. It was Brother Ali was headlining and Dime Def were opening at the new Vera Project space. And I went there and saw the person that I interviewed with like two days beforehand. And she was like, hey, so excited to see you here. And then I ended up getting that internship. And really like that decision of interviewing for that and going to that show or whatever are why I still work in music 36 years later now. <laughs> well, hard to but it was like it's been 36 years. That was my first opportunity to work in music. I was hired to start actually working at Vera's staff in 2008 on January 1st, 2008. But it was like that that moment. I remember being so intimidated. We have no children who listen to this podcast, of course. Um, but if there were young people listening to it, and if they were looking for advice, I'd be like, don't be intimidated. Just go and be present and do the thing. And you'll be fine. And like Rudy was fine too. He didn't get that internship at the Vera Project, but he's doing great now, right? <laughs> so what if, what if he's like still curses you for getting that internship instead of him? Oh, I mean, I have some rivals from 2007 also. Um. <laughs> I bet like so, so many people at UW afterwards were like, "Oh, you got that Sonics internship? I applied for that." Really? Yeah. There we go. Paulton Brothers getting internships at UW. <laughs> Uh, so that was, that was my, my real recommendation or my real recollection of 2007 is that was when I started working in music. Uh, a couple of other things though. It was the first time that I ever learned of like DIY music previously, never heard of it. And in like the mid two thousands, this is news to you, of course. Um, there was a real <laughs> scene, like the house show scene that was happening at that time was brand new and not brand new uh, it's been going on for decades uh it was brand new to me and very exciting and there are artists who are like becoming pretty popular from it like i think no age had their first compilation record again i'll tell you about them later uh there was dan deacon had his album spider-man of the rings which got best new music on pitchfork and like they wanted to do a show at the vera project while i was the intern uh and then ended up not being able to so they did a house show instead in the north end and it was like that was the coolest thing that I'd ever heard of. Or it's like they decided to do a house show on like 75th in the U district. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? It like opened up a brand new world to me being there. And there were all these artists who ended up a lot of them being very, very successful artists, but who were part of this like house show scene in the mid two thousands that was huge at the time. And the DIY punk scene, it's like it opened up this window of something that I never heard of before. Uh, the other thing that happened in 2007 was I got my first taste of VIP access. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, Capital Block Party. Uh, so my good friend Reese, who's been on the podcast, third Pelton brother, Reese Lazarus, uh, who congrats on finishing your first year of law school at UCLA. He, uh, as most punks do, um, he was working the Capital Block Party stage at the Vera Project Capital Block Party stage that summer in 2007, and I I was an in, I was the booking intern, and I kind of just followed him around. I remember Reese didn't have a phone, so he had to borrow our boss's phone for the weekend, and 
I was just like following around being like, what can I help with? Well, you know, like, what are we doing? Just the excitement of being, you know, I'd been at the shows at Vera, but like being at a festival for the first time ever. And then that was the weekend. I talked about this last week, the girl talk show at Capitol block party. So it was Friday, Saturday at the time there, there wasn't a Sunday back then. So Friday was the only day I could go. Cause our cousin's wedding, Chris was on, on the Saturday and the girl talk show on that Friday night was like the I, Numo's was probably double capacity for that girl talk show. It was fucking insane. Like people were nuts and hundreds of people were on the stage for the show. I'm pretty sure Reese snuck into who was far from 21. I feel, a like, lot you guys of were, were, I feel like you guys were not socially distanced at that point. No, there was no social distance. And Chris Smith was there. Is the tradition of Chris coming to block party. Uh, I think this last year was the first year that Chris didn't make it to block party, but it was like him who really discovered the VIP area. And I think he might have even gone back the next day when I was at the wedding. And he was like, there's food here and there's free beer. And I was like, dog, what? <laughs> I was like, somebody is giving you food and free alcohol? Tell me more. So that that was my, my first ever. I'd been to block party beforehand, but that was my first ever time working at block party. Um, and I guess if you could call what I did for the next like six years working, if it was <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes drinking an entire fifth of alcohol before the festival even opened because you were so hyped on the hold steady. Uh, that was 2007 was a very important moment for that. Should we talk about bumper shoot? Oh God. <laughs> Absolutely. We should. So you were working at bumper shoot that year too. I, I I was working for Seattle Times. Uh, I guess I was working at Bumbershoot. Uh, so they Seattle Times approached the Vera Project sometime in the summer of 2007 and was like, hey, is anybody interested in writing about Bumbershoot? Obviously, as you've heard from previous Remember Some Years, I'd been to Bumbershoot for quite a few years before then. I This was I, my goal in 2007 was to be a music journalist. I thought that's what I was going to do in 2007 before i understood the industry um and i was like all right well i guess i'll just give booking a shot because <laughs> that seems like the most important thing that you could do so uh seattle times hits up the vera project and they're like can you get a group of people together to write about bumbershoot for us and do like a blog these newfangled things that are happening uh-huh. in the world of print journalism an online blog was fucking revolutionary well fortunately <laughs> we have a record of their opinion their like oh, thoughts God. about blogs in 2007 because well the blog does not seem to exist with your actual reviews and descriptions of bummer shit. i'm like and i'm like 40 percent stoked and 60 percent disappointed that that's the case <laughs> this this does exist their discussion of it in the editorial Bumbershoot oh was God. the time's first experiment with allowing outsiders to blog on our site with little pro- professional intervention Corey Hake, SeattleTimes.com senior editor, called the approach trusted bloggers, people on the scene with a level of authority that was different from a reporter yes. or music critic. Level of Doug authority. Doug Kim, senior producer, came up with the idea of approaching the Vera Project. He asked them to assemble a group of knowledgeable music lovers who would, could report on Bumbershoot from a fan's perspective. And that team ended up including three people who were involved with the Fabulous <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> Can you someone named, the names too? As someone written. named Tristan Pelton. Tristan Pelton. Someone named Kate Corasino. <laughs> well, I just wanted to keep this separate from her professional work at that point. 
And then Mrs. Fantasy Genius was also part of that group. Kayleen, Mc- Kayleen McDaniels is what it says? Yes, it is. Well, all of our names were different at the time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, Katie's, Katie's name wasn't different, but she just went by Kate because that was like, I don't even know if she could keep some distance. Katie, Katie fucking blogging for Seattle Times. Hold on, oh we've got more God. quotes here. Oh, Hake, no. Hake oversaw their bummer blog, but with a soft hand. I barely touched their postings, maybe 10 words. I kept their voice and didn't take out anything. She felt the bloggers' postings were, quote, a very beautiful compliment to the work of the professional journalists on our site. Hake felt that involving young people from the Vera Project, quote, was a perfect marriage, the perfect model of citizen, journalist, and blogger. They are considered experts by their peers. They have credibility, but at a different level than a professional journalist. Wow. My God. Uh... So, uh, at the time, in 2007, uh, if Infrared is listening, he'll remember this. The 206 proof was huge in 2007, around this time. And I remember going to 206 proof. This was, so this was local rap, like, message board, right? Where people could talk their shit. And I was never, like, involved with it or whatever. I was a lurker at most. You know, I sort of like, and then eventually I got to know a lot of the people who were involved, uh, but they seemed like celebrities to me in 2007, you know, and it's like the, the people who, they were like all professional rap people, in, in my opinion, Infrared was like a huge name on that. And I remember going on to 206 Proof and being like, because Appalachian State had just beaten Michigan. <laughs> and one of the greatest comebacks of all time and i was like w- the bumper blog i was like we're appalachian state the like print coverage is michigan and andrew madsen who was writing for seattle times and the print coverage was like you all in the blogs get to be snark sharks i remember that as a quote and him <laughs> being like pissed that we had this freedom to just do whatever and he was like also a UW grad who was probably around the exact same age and, like, we did never in our entire lives basically met each other. But it's like, this was my number one competitor as a 21-year-old or a 22-year-old. And he was like, you all on the blogs get to be snark sharks. And, like, we have to be basically subject to journalistic, <laughs> like, review or whatever. They had actual editors. And for us, they were only editing 10 words maybe. So <clears throat> uh, that was pretty wild. After that, I they called me in on, like, the... Tuesday after, maybe the Wednesday after Bummer Shoot, we'd done this blog. It was pretty, I think that we far exceeded their expectations. You know, I think they were expecting like a couple of posts and we fucking did it, right? Because I was reading blogs. We were everywhere. We had a team of like five or six people who were there writing about a lot of artists throughout Bummer Shoot. You, you knew the a level, very successful blogger? The, <laughs> you weren't there. It's kind of funny, actually. Uh, we literally had, because we wanted video footage, and this was obviously pre-iPhone and video cameras and shit like that, Katie had this giant video camera <laughs> that we brought into Wu-Tang Clan and recorded on this giant video camera and somehow sent it to Seattle Times. I mean, it's something that would be considered, like, I mean, I guess two-decade-old technology, uh, 13-year-old technology, but it doesn't even seem like progressive in 2007, what we were doing. Uh, we also having a press pass, like I remember going into the bathrooms for Wu-Tang and like sneaking in alcohol and stuff. And it was like, great, we have a great opportunity to sneak alcohol into Bumbershoot, uh, which I had a press pass for the year before also. 
Um, <clears throat> but yeah, we went to the bathroom and had like a code for like sending alcohol back and forth under stalls and stuff. And we're doing this blog for Seattle Times. So they called me in. We're like, pitch us on a blog. And then I sent them something. They were like, yeah, we already have somebody who can do that uh, in-house, Andrew Matson. I was like, you fuckers. <laughs> I was like, my number one rival of 2007. Uh, they were like, he could do it. And I mean, he did a blog sort of similar to that for music. Uh, I was called up, though. If you'll look at the Seattle Times archives for a person... Oh. Once named Tristan Pelton, <clears throat> they they called me up a few times to do freelance work, which I I was literally never paid by Seattle Times because I didn't know how to make an invoice in 2007. <laughs> <laughs> the the idea of I mean Seattle Times I don't know how long the 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 um, statute of limitation goes for free, freelancers. They owe me like 450 dollars though. Because sometimes the numbers that they would quote for freelancing these things, they'd be like, yeah, we can pay you maybe 250 bucks. And I was like, what? Like, that was more money than I made in a month at the Vera Project as an intern. Uh, so I wrote about a show at the at UW, which was Arcade Fire, LCD Sound System, and The Gossip. That Pretty incredible show. Hell of a show, man. I mean, they did not, like, I don't remember almost any other time. This was not in the hub. This was at the arena. This was at BOA or whatever it was called uh, in the basketball arena. I don't remember almost any other time there being a show in the basketball arena. Uh, apparently, it was very expensive. Uh, sophomore Kyle Hargis said he had one or two friends Kyle, attending. Kyle Hargis, who I ended up becoming sort of friends with because he was in the group Universal Studios Florida. <laughs> nice. But then at thirty nine fifty, the price was high for college students. That's fucking steep, right? That is steep for them. 2007 for college students? You're probably getting, like, I don't know about that at that point, but, like, when I was there, you were getting season tickets for basketball for 39.50. Wow, I, I didn't even realize that that was Kyle that I talked to. Uh, I became eventually also... co co-workers with his bandmate and got to know, it's crazy, I went and talked to him in the rafters or whatever. My yeah. I was always weirdly negative. <laughs> <laughs> Which might have been why I was never asked. I think that was too expensive, even though I never actually sent them an invoice. Uh, but I went to the Tacoma Dome. They, this was day of that they called me. Uh, I think these were both like day of, maybe the day before. And they called me the day of to go to the Tacoma Dome to review Kiss 106's Jingle Bell Bash, uh, which Timbaland headlined. Blake Lewis, who is on American Idol and was from the Seattle area, played. And the Jonas Brothers early, early Jonas Brothers. They played at, like... So it was, like, Jonas Brothers were early, then I think Blake Lewis at some point. Timbaland was, like, 11.30, and nobody cared. One time he called up Justin Timberlake well, on the phone. According to this, it was took the stage at 10.45 p.m., so I... Which is it? Well, sorry, for not... I'm pretty close for... And it's then I came it. home, I drank a bunch of Red Bull, because, again, I had, like, a press access to this. I drank tons of Red Bull at the show, and the fucking press room at to Tacoma Dome, and I stayed up until like 4 a.m. writing this like weirdly negative review of this show, the Jingle Bell Bash, and then uh, filed that to Seattle Times. But yeah, the headlines quote Arcade. I love the quoting Arcade Fire fires up UW crowd. That was September 25th, and then there's a print version. I don't remember which is the print, and which was the web version. It was students, and then in brackets and non get some hot indie rock. And then the uh, Blake Lewis, Joni brother, Jonas Brothers, stay up late in Tacoma. <laughs> I, 
I mean, Timbaland was a pretty big deal at this point. This was like he had put out his own album, and The Way I Are was a huge song in 2007. Oh, I mean, he was a big artist, but like he wasn't. Jonas Brothers were the star in that show. He was a big artist because we talked about last week. Like he was, he was along for the ride as Sexy Back, you know. Along for the ride. Well, I'm saying, like, Justin Timberlake was the star, and Timbaland was the dude who produced it. Like, Timbaland should not be headlining the Jingle Bell Bash or whatever. Probably not. That ended my journalistic career, actually, in 2007. (laughs) Are we not counting this? (laughs) (laughs) You're calling this journalism? Uh, In a manner of speaking, we sometimes do interviews and shit. You never call me when you do those? You got to do the Super interview. <laughs> we haven't actually talked about who was playing Bumbershoot that year. I said the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they weren't the only ones. Uh, you mentioned, okay, so we've got the Shins were there that year. No recollection. I think as a byproduct of running around for the blog, I missed a lot of stuff. This was St. Vincent's debut album was that year? Yes. And she was at Pumper Shoot. That's what I was okay. saying. No recollection. No recollection. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Fergie. Oh, Fergie. I do remember Fergie and Sean Paul, which I'm pretty sure Katie wrote about. Um, <laughs> God, I wish that blog was still up. John Legend, Lupe Fiasco. And I think they might have led into Wu Tang. This was also a big Lupe year. He had Superstar, which was probably his biggest song, right? I, d- I have a distinct memory of Superstar and being associated with the 2008 NBA All-Star game that I attended. But I guess I'm not allowed to talk about that because that happened in 2008. <laughs> uh, well, also, I remember being at that bummer shoot. God, I wish this was up because uh, I remember going to go see a young local rap artist called Macklemore. And uh, playing in the Sky Church, and he was he was wearing he had a shirt which had the skyline and like cursive across it said "My city's filthy," and I was like I always wanted one of those shirts and for whatever reason never got one, <laughs> and I was like fuck I want those shirts and then they were gone or whatever by the time I wanted them, uh, but I remembered like being really hyped to go see Macklemore at Bumbershoot two thousand eight. Still 2007. Still 2007. Why do I keep saying 2008? Uh, Bumbershoot 2007, so going to see Macklemore. I've been told too many 2008 stories. Uh, another song that I feel like we should talk about because of the fact that it becomes important in your life. International Players Anthem. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Driving around UW as hip-hop music director, there was the station... Oh, God. I want to say it was 104.9, became a rap station for a while. after Post-Funky Monkey, of course. Uh, I'm pretty sure it became a rap station and they were playing. I was like driving on Chris Carcino's old street. I was like driving down it and I heard that. So I typed a text and I was like, what is this? (laughs) I was like, I am so instantly in. This is like the best outcast song. And then there's like rapping in it. And that whole record, all of underground Kings by UGK. Uh, the, the two songs we've talked about that I walked down and back on the aisle to, uh, but that became one of them, and that whole album, the Underground Kings album, was huge. 
And then we should also talk about, believe it or not, the best song of the year to reference a Sonics player in the title was not off the Blue Scholars album that year. It was instead uh, Della Shrimp by Band of Horses. Seattle expats. Yeah. Missing Seattle. Uh, There was that also worth mentioning, The Boxer, uh, the, the seminal national album, which I'm sure means something to you. It does. I like Dad Rock. <laughs> uh, Hissing Fun, Are You the Destroyer? Like that, the of Montreal that like it was it was the peak, really a moment where of Montreal felt like they were going to be a massive, massive group. And see, I thought it was when they had the Outback song. You know, they I wouldn't think... have done that without Hissing Fauna. Okay. <laughs> you booked of Montreal, right, at the Vera Project? I did, yeah. Let's go out back tonight. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't play that one. Uh, and then also, so Jay-Z had returned <clears throat> previously. He actually, you're not going to believe this, came out of retirement previously. Wow. But the real return, both spans film and music, and that was from a film that we thought would probably be very important and ultimately ends up not being very important. But... We definitely went to go watch this on the very first night it was in the theater. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like American Gangster is going to be huge. This was Russell Crowe and Denzel. And like, you know, the rewatchables that The Ringer does, like I would have assumed that it would have been first rewatchables. And I feel like American Gangster has been kind of lost in time, oh, except 100%. for the fact that it was... Jay-Z saw that movie and purportedly immediately went and started recording this album. He was like inspired for the first time since, uh, <laughs> like for the first time since he'd retired to do this. And it was, de- it was a massive comeback for Jay-Z. Whereas like, I mean, I remember there being a moment where I was like, Oh, Jay-Z sucks now. He's bad at rapping. Um, but he was definitely inspired by American, American gangster and had a pretty huge comeback. But yet the best Jay-Z song involved with it, like that I, the song that I associate with American Gangster is Heart of the City. Is that in the movie? It was in the trailer, apparently. Now that I'm uh, looking at Wikipedia. Ain't no love. But it's not actually on the soundtrack. It was a much older Jay-Z It was great. American Gangster was great. It was like back to Jay-Z being dead. He had stopped recording pop music for American Gangster. It was, it, it also like, honestly, similarly to the film felt like it was going to be a big deal. And now I saw somebody tweeting at big Waz the other day and they were ranking Hove albums and American Gangster ain't on the list. You know, <laughs> it was definitely like, okay. It was like, it was like time out of mind by Bob Dylan. You're like, yeah, okay. This artist is still good or four, four, four. You're like, but I actually, I still want to listen to the black album and to the blueprint or and reasonable doubt like it's not going to be the same but it's nice to be reminded every once in a while that your heroes are still good at what they do (laughs) anything more in music i think that's it let's transition then to movies it's like the heart of the apatow era in 2007 so we have both knocked up and super bad which is like the start of the, the second generation of apatow stars i guess 
And I feel like you and I were like not as in on that. And I guess you can speak for yourself, but I saw neither knocked up nor super bad in the theaters. And like, I've seen super bad one time ever. The other movie I remember seeing in the theaters that year specifically is uh, walk hard. The Dewey Cox story. (laughs) Yeah, We were high on the Johnny cash moment, you know, (laughs) it was was a great moment. I rewatched that. Not that long ago. It, It mostly holds up. Really? Uh, you re- did you watch the Johnny Cash movie? Or just no, Walk no, Hard Walk Hard. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> Walk, I have not rewatched Walk the Line since I watched that with John Noach before a UW football spring game in probably 2004. Yeah, I think I, you should have watched that before it. <clears throat> it would have been maybe too redemptive to watch before a 2008 Husky game, but <sighs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> you would have enjoyed the bleak parts though. Unfortunately, we're still in 2007, believe it or not. Still in 2007. <laughs> On the TV side, we have the debut of a, show, a couple of shows that I think we've referenced previously on Let's Remember Some Years, Human Giant and Flight of the Concords. We really exhausted Human Giant last week, but uh, an important moment for the the Ansari Hubel sheer uh, uh, combo of creators who've all gone on to pretty solid careers and uh flight of the concords was one where it's like another one of those sort of like basement shows like entourage where you're like what is this i snippets of end up but i'm like it's these weird new zealand guys and then you watch the show and you're like oh yes that first season of sports that came out on Sub Pop was like this is kind of all I want. Did we previously talk about Clull Tickle? Yeah, yeah we talked about Clull Tickle. Group? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Then but we did not previously talk about the most beautiful girl in the room. In the whole wide room. <laughs> the the other thing about the Flight of the Concords were there there were more seasons of Flight of the Concords, right? It's just the I, first I season. There was a second season, yes. The first season was definitely like cultural phenomenon. And the cool thing about it was the references to music that we hadn't necessarily heard before. You know, and like it was songs that were parroting. God, what is the artist? The Inner City Pressure, who they're parroting. Ah. It's like an 80s British artist. Yeah, I know who it is, exactly who it is. Well, you don't because you're not saying their names, but. Uh, I've listened to them not that long ago because they've been the soundtrack for the uh, the TV, the movie that became a book that became a movie that became a Hulu show. Yeah, high, high fidelity. High fidelity. Yeah, the book that became a movie that became a TV show. <laughs> That's the vertical. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've been doing this. We've been potting for a long time now. Okay, <laughs> Hornby predicted it. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that that show, like when they when they go into some of the musical the, numbers, it's the, where you're the like Pet Shop Boys, it's West End. Girls. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Pet, yeah like I've never heard West End Girls by Pet Shop Boys, but I know that Inner City Pressure rules. And when they went into I mean, that, it was just like I remember being like glued to the screen. Yeah, that, I mean, it just came out so strong, like that. That was like years of material that they had been working on in their concerts compressed into one season of a TV show. So it was obviously harder for them to follow up. But 
What a great season. Mm-hmm. Something we should talk about, though, with Human Giant. Old-fashioned fun. Oh, we're going to have some old-fashioned fun. And I don't know whether it was 2007 or 2008, but the old-fashioned fun playlist that came out of that old-fashioned fun sketch. Old-school jams. The songs yeah. are even old, older school now, but they're oh, still old they're, school. They're very old now. Uh, the other TV show I thought we needed to mention in 2007, oh, very quickly, The Pickup Artist. Oh, man. It just has not aged well, but boy, were we into that one season of that show. It is fun, those moments when you can watch, like, clearly, evidently bad TV. You know, I don't think any of us thought that it was good at the time. But what was the dude's name? Not Chris Angel, but... Uh, Mystery? Oh, yeah, Mystery. Cool dude. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really dude, great ideas. If we'd watch it now, it'd be obviously like so cringeworthy. Like it would never get to TV. But it was cringeworthy in 2007. But yes, exponentially more cringeworthy. It's like The Office with what Michael Scott is doing. Like it was cringeworthy in 2007, but now 13 okay, years the Office later, still holds up. So, but Michael Scott in particular, Diversity Day. But there are just some moments where you're like, or you just watch bad TV and it's fun for a while, right? It's like sometimes you just need to get into Laguna Beach for a little bit. (laughs) Wow. Uh, By the way, so sad news about Jay and Kristen. Can true love exist? I saw that. Yeah, they're still trapped in the Bahamas and uh, separated. That may have started in 2007, probably a little after that, though. The Hills? Uh, it, you think the Hills started? I no, 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 their relationship. Oh. Their relation. Uh, anything else from 2007? The Hills started in 2006, for six, six seasons, and uh, free Audrina. <sighs> I have no idea what that means, but cool. Uh, <laughs> you, you never watched any of this. No, I did not. You know, the most important thing that we never really talked about in the early 2000s was MTV's Next. That came up recently for some reason, I feel like. Oh, I've on the had a discussion about, about things that are great. <laughs> yeah. Or were you talking about Room Raiders? Did you Definitely ever watch these shows? Next? Did I ever watch yeah. Next? Yeah, oh, oh, okay, great. Huge. Well, but there was the other one before next. Singled right? out? Well, yes. I mean, that's been in the... I've been thinking about that lately because Carmen Electra has been in the of news. Course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Singled Out was... Watch that. We watched that a lot. Oh, my God. It was, it was a great hard work moment. It, it was how we learned to come up with... Uh, Lines about yourself that rhymed with your name. Uh-huh. <laughs> the people who are affiliated with. It's funny how sometimes those shows can happen where you're like, "Wow, these people really like." I'm. I'm not. Guess I'm not going to say that Jenny McCarthy and Carmen Electra are important long term, but like. I mean, Jenny McCarthy is important, just not for good reasons. They still seem like famous people now, and there are a lot of people who are on shows in the '90s that do not. Like, Chris Hardwick is still, like, a... He's, like, a current celebrity. 
and then Jenny McCarthy and Carmen Electra. It's like, look at singled out. Not bad. I'm trying to determine whether I'm thinking of dismissed. Could what? be tail daters, but I don't think so. Tail daters? It definitely was not date my mom. Or parental control. Are you thinking of Room Raiders? No. There were two shows. There was MTV's Next, where they got onto a bus, right? And yes. then when you were like done with a person, then you'd be like, next. And then there was MTV's Room Raiders, which were similar shows, and one person would go through three different people's rooms and then decide who they wanted to date based upon their rooms. I definitely don't think I watched that one. You didn't? Wow, Room Raiders was classic television. 